0: So if you're new uh, to us this morning, it's our typical pattern to work our way verse by verse through whole books of the Bible. Uh, But at the beginning of each year, uh, we take five Sundays, we set them aside to focus on certain subjects. And uh, this morning, that would be ethnic harmony. And so our text that we're going to use this morning to go in that direction is 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 5. And we're going to read together, beginning in verse 1 through verse 19a, first little bit of verse 19. <clears throat> so the writer of 2 Kings writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, that Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl. From the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. And so Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him. 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God? And cure the leper, or not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down. "...and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel." So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon." to worship there leaning on my arm and i bow myself in the house of rimmon when i bow myself in the house of rimmon the lord pardon your servant in this matter and elisha said to him go in peace all right let's pray together oh lord we thank you for your word there has been Study, there's been prayer, there's been preparation, and that's just for me. There's been the week, past, we come into this place uh, with so many situations, circumstances, anxieties, worries, cares, they're all weighing on us. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, even in the midst of those things, you would make a clear path for your word this morning to come straight into our hearts and to make us different people. Than we were coming in. We ask this for the glory of Christ in all the world. In whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, the Bible teaches us that from one man, God made billions of people, billions upon billions upon billions of people. And with that, the potential for that many differences and dividers amongst us, and yet overturning the judgment that we saw at Babel, Babel, whatever you want to call it, that God is still intent on a unity of peoples for time and for eternity. A people of peoples with Him, this one true living God at the center. As we arrive at this point in our first five series, uh, we mean to again to speak to ethnic harmony and we mean to do that because world history and American history as well as our own present day, uh, these are all ripe with injustices peculiar to ethnicity. And while I'd love to say the church can be largely absolved from that kind of charge, I don't think she can be. And moreover, in the absence of preaching on this subject, uh, there inevitably arises a host of remedies, not all bad, mind you, but still are not the cure that the gospel promises at once to be and then continue to be on Forever, yes, we need laws, and yes, we need some uh, reform, we need education, Uh, we need dialogue. But more and better, more and better than anything, for harmony that lasts across ethnic divides, we need new hearts. We need new hearts. We need the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We need the renewal of our humanity We need the onset of a repentance and a forgiveness and a humility and a patience and a love that arises exclusively from the crucifixion and resurrection of a Jewish man for all peoples. Until that is settled in us, and we're alive to our blood-bought peace with God, we have very little hope of desiring and developing and enduring peace with people who are otherwise quite unlike us. That's one of our core values of a church, however, is that we'd be a community, a community, a single community, from all cultures where Christ is king. Full stop. Uh, Friends, we all have our influential peculiarities. Be them familial, maybe they're cultural, maybe they're historical, and so on. Again, we are each distinct, but our labor as Christians then is to be careful that our many peculiarities are not allowed to become malignant idolatries. On one end, those things make us who we are. On the sinful end, they make us very tribal and divided. And that is where for the greater glory of Christ, the gospel just has to enter in. Uh, is where the word of God just has to take the reins. And where God himself must push our ethnic idols aside and establish himself as our unifying center. This one true God in and for all the earth. All nations. Knowing him does so help in matters, we might say, of skin. Well, with that, let's come to our text. And I'll first admit uh, it's not exactly it's not exactly or entirely about ethnic harmony. We do want to be careful about that, but I do still trust it will prove to be relevant and helpful on the subject. And so away we go here, starting with the skin problem of a great man. And you see in verse one, how the praise is piled up in his favor. Naaman is his name. And he was, as it says, commander. Of the Syrian army, a mighty man of valor, strong and brave and in high favor with the king because by his military exploits, Syria had won many a battle. Or to be more textual, it says the Lord had given victory to Syria through Naaman. He was an instrument in God's hands in favor of Syria, which if we have ears to hear right there is our first clue that Israel's God is more than just the God of Israel. At any rate, Naaman is a great man. Only with a very great problem. You see it at the close of verse 1. Naaman the great is a leper. He has a skin problem. And as we're going to find that the only cure is in Israel, with the God of Israel, things don't look especially promising for this Gentile leper, non-Jewish leper. See, however great and revered he was in Syria, he would be uh, someone who was utterly ostracized, if not even despised, by someone who was an observant Jewish person. Okay, I mean, even before you get to his skin, he was the commander of an enemy army. Not two chapters from now, you're going to find the Syrians besieging and instigating war with Israel. Just turn the page in your Bible, you'll see it. And he is at the forefront then of all kinds of Israelite pain and distress. But now add to that the emphasis in our text that he was first ethnically. Syrian, and next, diseased in his Syrian skin with leprosy. And honestly, it wouldn't surprise me at all if most Israelites hearing this said something like, Good riddance. But the point is that the great man has a great problem that only the great God from whom he is ceremonially estranged can fix. So, it's really good news. I think that the story doesn't stop right there. that it goes on. We come to verses 2, 3, 5, and there we are met by the great grace of a little girl. Isn't that wonderful? The more I've thought on her, uh, the more I'd say she's nothing short of remarkable. Why is that? Several reasons. But mainly, that she's able to see through so much of what divides people to what has the power to help and unify them, bring them together. You see the details of our text seem to give us this particular profile of her. She's young, little girl. She's Jewish, Israelite. She's a captive and she is a servant. She was taken presumably from her family. Listen, in a raid conducted by Syrian men, maybe even led by Naaman. So let's just pause and consider here. Does this little girl not have reason to be deeply embittered towards, let's just start with men. Right, Syrian men, they're on a raid, they they raid the area and they capture her, take her away from her family, and she is enslaved. And does she not further also then have reason to be so angry really with any Syrian? And as an Israelite, would she not then have still more reason to sneer at a Gentile leper in particular? to wish ill upon him, even to take comfort from his pain. Wouldn't it be understandable if she held a racially charged disdain for the rest of her life? There are so many rational obstacles between her and him and the cure she knows. And yet, what do we see? I'll tell you what we don't see. We don't see one hint of hatred. We don't see one hint of self-determined justice. She hears of the problem. She knows of the remedy. (laughs) And she most graciously passes it along to Naaman's wife, who is the woman that she serves. So beloved, let's learn from this remarkable little girl instead of ethnic divisions, instead of skin color or condition, instead of her unthinkable wounds, she chooses to see a person with a need that she can help. She chooses to love. She chooses to be gracious. She chooses to show compassion. She chooses, here it is, to display the heart Of the God of Israel. Two things then. Little ones in here. You may be the only one left. (laughs) Don't be afraid or hesitant to do big things. However basic in the name of God. Just because you're little. Okay? This little girl deserves credit. For getting the ball rolling towards a cure. A ball that will roll through the court of two kings, a prophet, and finally heal the great man himself. She's an example for the world. And no less the assembly of God's people of the humanizing effect of faith in God. You see it in verse 3? Concerning the prophet of God, she says not that he might cure Naaman, but that he absolutely would cure him. She believes the best about God and about the prophet of God. Indeed, she assumes her will will be his own will. He will not, as it were, be of the tribe of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Okay? This prophet, he's not going to be like him. He will readily help his enemy. Dear ones, do we share this little girl's humanity? You see, that is what Christ meant to restore in us. What we we'll lost by sin, the sin dehumanizes us. What so we we'll lost by sin, Christ means to resurrect and give again. Restore to us. And some part of that, which will distinguish us as his people amid a dividing world, is that we will tangibly begin to affirm the humanity and the value and the dignity even of the worst of people because they are people. We'll see them and we'll see their need and knowing the cure, we will readily give them grace. All right, well, we see the girl's good news is passed along all the way to the king of Syria who sends the well-supplied Naaman to the king of Israel with a letter of support. And in that letter, you see verse 6 now, it is presumed that the king of Israel would be aware of the cure, or at least how to procure the cure. Right? Naaman's uh, been sent to him, it reads, that he, the king, might cure Naaman of his leprosy. However, However, that only introduces us to the Sin problem of an evil king. You see, this era of Israelite royalty was marked by a notorious wickedness. If you go read through uh, Kings and Chronicles. If this isn't Ahab, uh, it's one of his equally godless heirs. And this is fairly apparent in the fact that when the little girl heard of Naaman's plight, her mind immediately ran to the cure that resided with a particular prophet of God. Whereas this king, hearing the same thing, responds the way that he does, which is different, (laughs) very different. Uh, His mind does not conceive of a cure. It does not run to the prophet. He doesn't have any hope in God, it seems. In fact, his words are ironic here. He, He tears his clothes and says, Am I God? Am I God? You see, he knows uh, this ask is above his pay grade. He says it's the task of him who kills and makes alive and yet, knowing that there is one who kills and makes alive and perhaps could even cure the leper, he does not seek that God. It doesn't dawn on him to consult his word. He may talk of God. Am I God? He may talk of God, but he he doesn't know God. Indeed, as it is With natural man, his focus is entrenched in self. And that is why he despairs the way he does, why he tears his clothes the way he does, because he thinks he's God, and yet discovers afresh he is not. As a man, he has limits, and curing the leper is beyond them. Friends, believing in yourself is so popular today so popular in our culture, believing in yourself to this degree is a sure way of despairing of yourself, as this king does. And moreover, see that his distance from the word of God and the God of the word also cultivates in him an attitude, we might say, of, of skepticism, where those two things, the word of God and the God of the word, where they make for Peace, as seen in the grace of the little girl, the absence of them, the word of God and the God of the word, the absence of them, makes for what is natural to man, and what is that? If not war. See, he says, how he is seeking a quarrel with me. So again, uh, we see that the the kind of harmony we ought to seek is rooted in in knowing the God of all the earth. It's in putting aside our idolatries. It's in putting aside our self-worship. It's in putting aside our self-contained notions of reality for the truth and grace of God that makes for peace across ethnic lines. And this line of thought continues in verse 8. With the entrance of Elisha, the prophet, into the story. And with him, the lowly cure of a godly man. He's heard here of the king's unfortunate response. It's hopeless because it's godless. But let us hear, it doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to be that way. Elisha, Elisha, in the prime of his prophetic ministry at this point, calls to the king, Why all this despair? Why all this despair? Send him to me. And don't miss the purpose. It's stinging towards the king. That he, Naaman, may know that there is a prophet in Israel. <laughs> okay. That there is a word of God And that there is a God of the word who is able and willing to cure and cleanse this otherwise incurable outsider. And so Elisha rebukes the king, even as he aims to relieve him of his despair. And that was right to do. Beloved, we ought not make the leaps that natural folks will. This king, godless as he was, leapt to a godless assertion. His self-delusion led to the wrong conclusion. It doesn't appear he speaks with Naaman. He doesn't appear to seek a better understanding of the situation. He just assumes. He assumes the Syrian king means to incite war. That is precisely where the man of God knowing the word of God, must enter the fray. When it comes to race relations, we need Elisha's. We need people of biblical faith. We need people of biblical knowledge. We need people of biblical character to straighten out our potential missteps, to fill the void of ignorance with divine truth and grace so that we're able to be about the things that make for peace moving forward. Now, to be sure, there is more here than that, right? And likely even the primary focus in the text, and that is that while at this time in biblical history, redemptive history, ethnicity certainly should have advantaged one to know God. And I just mean the Israelite there should have been advantaged to know God. We see in this case and most others that it had not helped them. Because knowing God is not finally an ethnicity thing. It's a human heart thing. The king may be an Israelite with clear skin. He's a poster child for acne products. Whereas Naaman is not. But he's in no true way nearer to God because of it. Our text is really a foretaste of God's heart that all nations, not just Israel, but all nations have a heart for him. But in it, we are given to learn that racial division isn't ultimately a skin thing. Not ultimately. Ultimately, it's a sin thing. It's a sin in the heart thing. And so reconciliation, listen, reconciliation is ultimately, ultimately, a salvation thing. It's only as we're reconciled to God, as we know ourselves as sinners, beholden to the cross of Jesus, that we'll find a forgeable path to people reconciliation. But So the problem is now passed to the prophet. You see there that Naaman goes to Elisha's house? and stands at the door, the great man with great expectation. And uh, Elisha sends word to him, verse 10, She say, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. There is the divine and lowly cure of the godly man. And I say lowly because as you see, it hardly seems to meet the great man's expectations. Naaman is, is angry, whereas we, we, we think, maybe he hear this, and he would begin to leap for joy. he's actually the opposite of that. He's angry. And so it appears, beneath the skin, this great man has his own sin problems. You see? How do we know that? It's all in his discourse. He's insulted. And we may think with good cause. He's a great man who expects great things, or perhaps he expects to be treated greatly. I'm sure that was the custom where he was from. But what do we see? Elisha does not invite him in. (laughs) Naaman! Great man! He doesn't do that. Elisha doesn't even go out to him. Elisha just sends a word. Hmm. Naaman seems to be expecting Dumbledore or something, right? Or maybe even even to stick with like Israelite prophets, Elijah call down fire from heaven and all this kind of thing. He's expecting something great here. A great show of great power with a great result. But the reality doesn't meet his expectations. Divine grace does not meet with human idealization. The word of God does not meet with worldly preference. As we find most clearly in the gospel, divine wisdom and divine power comes in a package the world naturally despises and rejects. And so it's foreshadowed here. Reality is, reality is here, Naaman is ceremonially unclean, and Elisha is not Jesus. What do I mean? I mean, as we see in the Gospels, Jesus can not only come to the leper, but even touch the leper. Remember? He can touch the leper, and then he can go on to cleanse the leper without himself becoming Unclean. But Elisha's not Jesus. And maybe, maybe, that's what's going on behind the scenes here. Regardless, regardless, the Israelite prophet and man of God does give the Syrian leper a word of divine mercy and promise. It's just that, as with God made low and crucified... Receiving the heavenly remedy demands an unnatural humility. But this is a great man, Naaman. He's got pride about him. And as is clear in verse 12, some part, some part of that pride includes ethnically partisan commitments. You see what he says? He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Okay, geography lesson here, okay? Damascus is the ancient capital of Syria. And today, still, one of the great holy cities in Arab Muslim culture. But at any rate, the idea is that Naaman is put off. He's enraged, in fact, by the notion that his cure resides exclusively in Israelite waters. Why isn't the blessing closer to home? (laughs) Home is better. Assyria is better. Damascus is better. Abana and Farpar are better. The waters in them is finer. All that from a Gentile leper granted a cure in the Jordan waters of Israel. I cannot believe that, he seems to say. Or at least I will not condescend to such a remedy. It's like it's a personal attack against his ethnic instincts. And so it says, he turned and he went away from it in a rage. And in this, we discover Why essential, essential essence, essential harmony across ethnic divides is quite impossible apart from the grace of God. Our cultural, familial, historical bubbles are big. And like a child, we like to throw a fit whenever those bubbles are busted but busted they have to be. If ever we're to have ethnic harmony here, I want to be clear here, I want you to hear, it won't be because we forfeited our roots. You don't have to do that. It'll just be that they've begun to draw their nourishment from a different kind of soil. Or, to stick with bubbles, it'll be when a commitment to being part of a gospel bubble a gospel culture presides over the combination of our many earthly ones when we can affirm with galatians chapter 3 verses 27 and 28 that quote as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ so that there is neither jew nor greek for you are all One in Christ. That is. First and foremost. Believers are no longer just. Black or white or Asian or Afghan or whatever. But new creatures. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Called to the good but hard work of love and maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. A great part of that maintenance is the resolve we ought to have to help one another see the remedial forest for the racial trees. I don't know how much play they get here, but I don't want you to miss Naaman's servants. Without their service... His personal pride, including some degree of ethnocentrism, would have kept him from the cure. But by it, by their service, Naaman is gifted the needed counsel of clear sighted friends. How we need it. Where he's all caught up in the multifaceted offense of the cure, they're just like, but there is a cure right calm down take a deep breath go syria number 1 but my father it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you will you not do it has has he actually said to you just wash and be clean? Remedial forest for the racial trees. Now, again, that's not all Naaman's hang up, but it is part of it. It is part of the distance between he and his healing. And so they serve their master so well here. By helping him to actually hear and then consider and then act upon the word of God. So the cure isn't in Abana. So what? The cure is not in Farpar. Who cares? There is a cure. And will you not lay hold of it? Maybe you're here today. And you're a slave to spiritual pride. You think, I'm too good, I'm too great for the word of grace. If so, I want you to hear something. That though there were grander waters in the world at this time, the Gentile leper's cure was in none of them. But only in Israel's Jordan. And just so, Your salvation is where you're least inclined to look for it. It's in Israel's Jesus. And will you not lay hold of him? Dear ones, in our pursuit of unity amid diversity, will we not also see in him alone the ultimate remedy? Again, we're talking ultimacy here, but the ultimate remedy for every inevitable challenge to the unity we pursue. The world offers many grander ideas about how to pull it off. There are theories that sound real smart and up-to-date on the cuff, but only intend, really, a reverse racism in the end that's bent on silencing certain folks on the basis of their skin color. Okay. I want to be slow to speak, I want to be quick to listen. That's biblical. Okay? But in the end, we have a great word from God. We have a cure from God that I've got to believe can and must have the lion's share of the conversation. It was Isaac Adams. He's a black pastor in Birmingham, Alabama who subtitled his uh, recent book, Talking About Race, subtitled it, Gospel Hope for Hard Conversations. Gospel Hope. In it, he says this, quote, I felt and still do that it is imperative to bring biblical light to the why of Christians' dysfunctional communications about race. If we could do this, we would not agree on every racial detail, but maybe we could see that it is possible to hold our beliefs and hold our tongues, <laughs> or at least to employ them in a better way. If we would do this, one of the hardest challenges for churches in America, i.e. loving across racial lines, could become one of our most powerful testimonies to a divided and dividing world. By God's grace, we could show the world a different world. And I would add, a world where the divine cure is allowed greatest weight. And we see the ideal result in our text, don't we? Naaman's servants have counseled him, not to be Naaman-centric, but word-centric. Not ethnocentric, but cure-centric. And by the grace of God, Naaman now has turned toward that. He puts aside what had so enraged him, goes down to the Jordan, condescends to it, Dips himself in the Jordan seven times and to what should be our amazement, says in verse 14, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child and he was in fact clean. Wow. He opted for the cure. And the cure proved to be a cure indeed. He experienced the grace of God. His skin problem was alleviated by resurrection power. But, would it go beneath his skin and touch his heart as well? That's the question. I'm inclined to think so. That what we see in verses 15 through 18 is the desired result of grace received, which is always, always true conversion expressed in a decided resolve to live to none but the Lord alone. So here, like the uh, one of ten lepers, you remember the story in Luke chapter 17? One of ten lepers who returned to Jesus after Jesus had healed all ten of them. That one that returned to give praise to God was a Gentile while the other nine were Jewish. Like him, Naaman returns to Elisha, and all his company, it says, to give glory to God. Behold, he says, I know that there is no God in all the earth, but in Israel there's the heart. It's been raised from the dead. And friends, just there we need to understand as it goes on that he's just disavowed his former idolatries. In fact, he shows he's quite concerned that the Lord pardon him for worshiping him where he can afford to do it. That is, in the temple of his now former, and he knows, fabricated deity. He is, verse 17, a worshiper of the Lord alone. Israel's God is now this Gentile's God. And I love Elisha's response to him. He says in verse 19, go in peace. That is blessed assurance. It's the word of a true prophet. He's saying to Naaman, Our God is yours. Our God is yours and you have His pardon and His peace. And in it, we, you and I, ought to find pardon to give and peace to make with one another the leprous Syrian commander has not only been reconciled to God, but also to God's people. Moreover, he's experienced a grace that ought to make him gracious to any and all people, period, as was displayed to him and to us by a little girl and a man of God. And why did they do that? To come full circle. Because they knew the heart of the one true God of Israel and imaged it. Dare I say, uh, there can be no lasting harmony without His indwelling heart. A heart we go on to see that refused to settle for grace at a distance. In fact, such grace as we see in our text, demanded that God himself come. Not just to cure the leper, but as we know, deeper still, to save the sinner. This God took on, wait for it, he took on skin. Probably a kind of brownish skin. And he bore our sins. To renew and justify us as men and women of God. Elisha here speaks no pardon or peace between God or men but what prophesies of Christ crucified and raised. And just and only there will we find that bond that goes beyond all worldly borders. Listen, will we be be co-heirs of grace and glory only to be divided strangers here and now? Will we let the power of Christ's blood go much to waste by deifying the histories of our own blood? Will we only confess no other God in all the earth? Or, admitting so many peoples and at least as many hurdles, will we let that great singularity Forge the foundation of an abiding peace and harmony across all divides. To put it another way, will we show as well for God as this little girl? Will we show as well for God as this prophet of God? Will you go out today with a heart that's heaven set on breaking molds and comfort zones to love someone, anyone, who is unlike you. Because, beloved, one fine day, I'll tell you, by God's grace, there will be a community from all cultures gathered around the throne of one great king. And it's his intention that his people be a foretaste of that marvel in the present hour. No other God in all the earth means there is only one God for all the earth. We may be many, but there is only one cure. We may be many, but there is only one point of unity for time and eternity. And that's what we're after. Time and eternity. And that point of unity is finally at the foot of a cross. Where this God has made himself supremely known to all the world. Well, may this God help us to do what we can to know him well and equally show his heart. To be ministers of alienation, less and less. And ministers of reconciliation, more and more. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray uh, that you would honor it now. I am just a man. Everybody knows this. But you are God. You are the one who sanctifies. You are the one who saves. You are the one who alone has power to convert. You are the one who alone has power to to unite where there may be differences. We want to believe that. Help our unbelief. Get glory for yourself this morning through your word, through the gospel.